doesn't seem very real to any of us. I mean, I, my memories of images of him, Mr. Paddy O'Brien, going over the um, through Checkpoint Charlie um, in the snow, completely drunk, you know, and um, just various tales, sort of incompetency. I mean, he never, you know, presented himself as kind of a hero or anything like that. Um, I thought, well, I suppose, probably thought, oh, well, that's in the family tradition, isn't it? Because my grandfather was <laughs> so naughty as well. <laughs> he was sneaking around, you know, and um, after he was supposed to go to bed and he'd hear his father ranting away in some radio in German and how, you know, he knew there was something going on. His antennae were alert. And then the stories of the spy that was kept in the garden, um, Herman Gertz, and it was all, like, piece of fiction, really, I suppose, yeah. It is a funny story. It was always just like a little bit of a family myth. It wasn't really very real. <laughs> it just never struck me as being strange. <laughs> it was as if I always knew. I don't remember suddenly going, oh my God, my father was a spy. That's what you think? It is a Sunday. That's what I can think. That's why we are not allowed to think. Unser entire this is the story of a father and son. It is also a story of history, for some as a nightmare and for others as a farce. This is Donal O'Donovan, codenamed Paddy O'Brien. My father was middle-sized and, and uh, bequeathed me his dark hair, which he had at the same age as I am now. Uh, he uh, well, he got plumper, of course, but he was he described as a good-looking man with spectacles. And he had, during the, the War of uh, Independence, he had... He was director of chemicals in the IRA, so he, he, one of his experiments went wrong and he blew a hand grenade off in his hand. He was left with about half his hand, about bits of the, his fingers were, was gone, but it was his right hand and he was able to write all his life with, with the, I think half his thumb was gone, half of two other fingers. And he, to, to hide it, he was acu acutely conscious of this. So he usually wore a glove and he would shake hands with you with the other hand while he held the glove. In, in the Department of Chemistry in UCD, there was Hugh Ryan, Michael Dillon's father, what's his name? Anyway, he and Hugh Ryan persuaded my father to join in the making of explosives for the IRA and that's how he became director of chemicals in 1920 and when the split came and the civil war came he was made director of chemicals again on the republican side and there's a painting of them all by Leo Hill and who would he have been sitting there alongside Edgar uh, Collins uh, Mulcahy um, Pierce Beasley um, Sean Russell, yeah. he he famously wrote uh, invented two 
chemicals which were called Irish war flower and Irish what's it called Irish cheddar and that's they were the main chemicals were used in hand grenades or bombs by the IRA he would have retired politically about when he was released from Newbridge in 1923. And I think he would have thought that his active Republican or revolutionary life was over. But in fact, Sean Russell persuaded him in 1938 to come in again to devise the S-Plan, which was for the bombing of England, strategic targets in England, not for people. That's not meant to kill people, but it did in the end. And in '39, then, they uh, issued this, I won't say ridiculous, but it was an ultimatum to Britain to get out in three days or something, or else we'll... And they went ahead and did it. And they uh, targeted Coventry and other English cities, and they bombed bridges and whatever they did. Just concerning the S-Plan itself, before we go on further, could you explain to me the background about the political climate at the time and what was going on around the world and maybe why? Well, what was going on in the world was the beginning of a a world war and and, uh, very little attention was paid to this campaign. It was really Sean Russell who had the the ambition to bomb Britain and to, to get Britain that way out of Ireland. Um, I think I know my father was very very sad afterwards about what he had done he was very proud of the plan which the Morning Post at the time had given in detail once they got it but uh, apart from the they had praise for the plan that, that pleased him you know but the whole idea of going back. The man was 42 years of age. He had four children. He had a mortgage. He had a job. He had everything to lose. And he suddenly went away. He went off and did this. What was his first contact with Germany? How did he... Oh, well, the contacts were the, with the Abwehr, which was the German Secret Service under Admiral Canaris. And that's there the people he reported to. When he went to Hamburg, he was going to the to meet the people in the affair. And he had met people from the affair in Dublin before that. And why would he be meeting them? He was for the, he was asking for the IRA. Uh, they were in need of radios, they were in need of guns, they were in need of ammunition, and these things were being put as... Would the Germans please supply these things? Do you, do you remember this? Do you remember going to Germany? I do, of course, because you've got nice presents. I got a lovely air gun and uh, our parachute knife and various things, yes. And he'd come in the door and would he tell you about Germany and he'd tell you about what was going on? Or Not at all, no, no. They'd have been on a holiday, my wife, my mother and himself. Or if he was, uh, in the other case, uh, the other two cases, he wouldn't tell us that he'd been to Germany for the weekend. You know, he wouldn't say anything about it. He would leave around things like uh, uh, tr- ferry 
about schedules and airline schedules and things you could find for yourself. I was a very curious person. And of course, my curiosity manifested itself in, in the, there was a very big radio with Germany and the area ran from the chimney of ours across a valley to a tree, a big tree. It was a huge area. And the area, uh, my task was to find the radio. Where was all this stuff going? You know, and in fact, at the back of his books in his study, I found the key of his study, and I opened the door with a very big old-fashioned key, and I found a big radio. Um, but we also noticed that there was a man that we, as children, called Mr. Saturday Night. Mr. Saturday Night was uh, a radio operator who called on Saturday nights and made the broadcast every Saturday night for a year or two years. Yeah, I I remember uh, my parents coming home from a meeting from something one night about eleven o'clock when I was in bed and my mother came up to say good night and I said, "Was your journey last night or tonight? Was it anything to do with the IRA?" Oh, she said, I might have known that you'd add two and two. That's all she said. Just concerning your, your, your father, how many times did he go over to Germany? Would you, would you... Just three in the one year. That's all. And what year was that? T- 39. He came back just as the war began. Yeah. And twice he went on his own, and then it would have been once he would have went with your mother. Yeah. Um, why, why did he go with your mum? Or why did your mum go Oh, just as cover. It actually gave him a bit longer. He took holidays, and because he had his wife with him, it just looked up to everybody like a holiday, you know. And the German mark, the Germans had for 10 values for the mark, I think, and one of them was the tourist mark. And so they were able to buy things like the first umbrellas known as knips, you know, the folding umbrellas, the short six inch umbrellas. They were invented at that time. And they brought one of them home. Were you ever questioned, or was there? Any oh yeah, well, she had a row. She she was a smoker, and and she had, what's the story? She had concealed two hundred cigarettes in her bag or something. And they they strip searched her, which annoyed both of them very much. And uh, I think it, it it turned her off Germany. <laughs> That's. That's the only story I know. I know my mother, uh, when, um, what's his name? I'm sorry about the memory lapses, but the function of age. Um, Oh, the famous man that wrote the uh, Spies in Ireland. He wrote the story of her in Hamburg on the docks being searched. And she was very cross with him because she had meant it as just conversation. She hadn't meant it as an interviewer to be ever mentioned. <laughs> it embarrassed her. In the military archive at Cahalbrough Barracks, these are papers Jim O'Donovan wrote. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received. 
and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. If Pierce and Clark and all that crazy bunch had never lighted the flame of Easter 1916, to which Mr. de Valera does mockingly honour, the IRA and all genuine Republicans and lovers of Ireland will unflinchingly nail their colours to the mast. Ireland, an independent nation. Defeat for England. Ireland's restoration to the European system. Not the first, but maybe the most important of the spies landed by parachute in County Meath, Herman Gertz. And he walked to Glendalough. He couldn't find where he was, so he walked to Glendalough where he had a contact. Francis Stewart had given them the name of his wife in, in Lara, and he went, turned up at her doorstep. She was terrified because she didn't want a, a raid by the special branch. And she rang my father and told him that he, this man had turned up, weird-looking, tall man in Luftwaffe uniform, if you don't mind, with a 32 automatic and a parachute knife of great beauty. I got a present of both of these afterwards, that's why I remember them so well. And uh, my father went down, he still had petrol, he had a big, tank of petrol buried in the garden, 50-gallon tank, and he was able to use that. You weren't otherwise encouraged to use your car, or you could be asked where you were going. So he went down and got guts and brought him back to my bed for the night. My Yeah, I was at school, and my bed was vacant, so I put him in that for the first night. Then they devised a way of keep him in the stable at night and under a eucalyptus tree in the orchard uh, by day and my mother would bring his meals out to him. All oh, this was going on. We, we had no idea. We didn't even see the man. He was sent by Canaris to try to evaluate what, what he found when he did make contact with the IRA. And he did make an awful lot of contact. He, and he got friendly, not friendly, but he was in contact with the German ambassador who was very embarrassed by this little man, a big man that came to his door. Gertz remained at large for 18 months. Nobody else of the Germans that landed here it lasted more than 24 hours. September 1941. In the military archive, Carlborough Barracks. O'Donovan, a known IRA man, was identified on several occasions leaving 1 Charlemont Avenue, Dunleary, a safe house where the German spy Hermann Goertz was staying. They came in eight squad cars up to Florence, a big long drive and they took the place apart to try to get some proof of what they were alleging against them. And they found out and they were sent upstairs to different rooms and stables and that they found. They didn't find the gun, they didn't find the knife. 
um, they questioned us individually. I remember a detective questioning me about who, who was there in the same way, who, what sort of people were would be visiting the place, and what did I know? And I knew nothing really because he had been very careful about his own reputation and his own job. My sisters, my sister was questioned too. My younger sister was too young. She was only three or four and she wasn't worth talking to. My brother was questioned, of course. So there was no incriminating evidence around the place at all. And they failed totally. So all they could do was intern him because they had nothing against him. Commandant D. Mackey, G2 Brigade, Curra Camp, 22nd of October 1943. Individual Jim O'Donovan, not to be trusted. Very intelligent and not to be trusted. It is with difficulty we keep him from imparting his explosives knowledge to the other internees. No, it was just personal regret that he had caused all this trouble to us and to his wife especially. And you know, she had to do, she had to take in paying guests to, to, to make some money. Uh, I wanted him home, I wrote to him, he wrote to me. Um, I wrote silly things. I remember once I put something silly under the stamp when I was sticking it on, like, uh, I'll see you soon, or V-Day Sub Rosa, look under the stamp, you know? <laughs> silly things like that. Um, I remember cycling from a time when I used to go on holidays uh, to, to look at the number one internment camp, to try and find it and see if I could see him, but of course, I could never find it. Following unsuccessful plans of O'Donovan to secure his release, he wrote, there are other means available. This may be a veiled reference to escape tunnels. Well, two and a half years from September 41, whatever that makes it, it's 43, no, 44. Spring of 44. He came home to my grandmother's house in Fleet Street. That's where we meet, met him, and he took us for a bottle of stout, I think, over to the local pub, and that was the first thing we'd ever done that. That's what I remember. In my grandmother's house, over the dairy. And there was there for two and a half years, and they were the, really the two and a half years of my growing up. And we went for a walk up Carty Gallagher in County Dublin, and he he uh, he tried to t teach me the facts of life, and he. he uh, started to tell me the story and I told him that he was far too late that I'd been to school. If we are not true to our word there, 
All that we have achieved in collective security, which relies on these words, will mean nothing. Und auf der einen Seite ist Ostberlin, auf der anderen Seite ist Westberlin. Und a woman from Dresden who made a run for it when the People's Army was checking another man's identification. She ran through a hole in the barbed wire. It is the path of weakness. We shall not surrender. That is the central meaning of this crisis and the meaning of this government policy. Donal O'Donovan had now grown up. He was the assistant editor of the Irish Times. He was married and had a child. In 1963, he was sent to cover a trade fair in Leipzig. I think I had invented my, a name for myself, Paddy O'Brien, who was very original. And, uh, and my first wife, as I said, was German, half German and I had absorbed some of the language and some of the culture through her. And we had a daughter who was brought up German first and English second, and she realizes that, realized that there were people in Oakland's Drive, Rathgar, who spoke a strange language <laughs> that she'd like to know. And that was the end of her. It was the end of her German. She always kept it. She still has it. She went to the German school and kept it that way. So I suppose there's a special interest there, yes, a special sympathy. But it was much more pronounced on the side of the deprived underground, as I saw it. Uh, people who were being hounded by the West than the plutocrats on the Crowfusten Dam. I did not even know the word Stasi. Although all changed everything, of course, for everybody. And a group of us, after the fair was over, which was a week, we were invited by the Central Press Office, which was a cover of Stasi, for the Stasi. But they, they invited us to, would we like to see the rest of East Germany. So we did a very good tour and a very um, a very privileged kind of tour of a lot of the main cities of East Germany. And they showed us the wall. Uh, at the Brandenburg Gate, they had, in the Brandenburg Gate, they had a big council room with a colonel from the army who explained to us what their case was for putting up the wall. And it seemed reasonable. Uh, and then, uh, it's, a, it's a part where the wall is very low because um, it's very open and they can train guns on it very quickly. And they leave it open so that we can see, we could see from our their side, we could see the Western tourists looking down on, on the, the wall and uh, we had a guide uh, I can't even remember her name now Trudy or whatever her name is anyway uh, we were, we broke up and we had lunch and she went off and the next we, we met for dinner and 
um, we said, how, how, how did you spend the afternoon? And she said, I lay on my bed crying. And I said, why? Why, did you, why were you crying? Because I want to see Selfridges. And there we were. I could easily have run. They wouldn't have dared to shoot with you there. I could easily run. And that's what I wanted to run to. I wanted to see Selfridges. They were very, very lonely people because they had. It was two years after, uh, after the war was. Wall was up. Thirteenth of August, nineteen sixty-one. They built the wall, and they took a part of the tour was that they took us around the wall to explain their side of it. The fact that their currency had gone down four to one against the West Mark, mm. and. Uh, the fact that their uh, people were leaving in groves, groves. There were millions of East Germans going west. And at the end of that, I remember singing the, the East German National Anthem, which I think I can still remember. The, this central press officer, officer was uh, impressed that I could sing their National Anthem. And uh, he asked me would I like to meet some people in Berlin after the tour was over and the others had gone home. And I went and met some bureaucrats, as they seemed, and they asked me would I like to do some intelligence work for them in uh, Ireland, and if possible, to uh, get myself in, uh, uh, sent to uh, cover the, uh, the NATO Council meetings, I think. Yeah. I never got there, but I pretended I had. And I... But I still had sympathy for them uh, because of their seeming isolation from the West and also their fact that the East German people seemed to be more so, uh, human and sympathetic and, and uh, not to have the great privileges of wealth that we had, especially West Germany, of course, at the time. So they... I think it was the underdog. I think it was the feeling that, and maybe, I think that was the reason, but it, it was alcoholic confusion. I mean, I just thought, there we go, it's, it's, it's being offered, why not take it? <laughs> it was irresponsible, that's the size of it, you know. The drink is a great excuse for everything, you know. On those grounds, if there were any grounds <laughs> of alcohol, that I I uh, did this thing for about I don't know ten months or whatever it was until I got terrified of the CIA. And this thing is because like just sometimes when you say that you know people can get a little bit confused. What is this thing? Well, this thing we involved uh, sometimes inviting a. a say a Swedish journalist out for a meal and giving him uh, asking him questions about the likelihood of war or 
just localized issues concerning Germany and, and East Germany. And uh, I used to travel to Hamburg and then from Hamburg to Berlin on the east, eastern side, no, western side, and then cross by Checkpoint Charlie or one of the other. There were two or three openings. And you'd have quite a problem to get through because you hadn't got any paper to show you that you were the guest of the government. You know, you had you were actually going in as a 24-hour. You were to be home by 12. That was the size of it. If you wanted to visit anything in East Germany, in East Berlin, you, you had to be home by 12. And of course I wasn't, so it sometimes proved a bit of a problem. Because they wouldn't give you help. They wouldn't give you much help in the in the central press office. And they, except they tell you to put your suggest that you put your, your fee, your in West German marks in your shoe. And that's what I did. It wasn't a great fee, it was you know, around two hundred pounds plus expenses or something. The Adlon was the great play the great hotel in the thirties. And then it was bombed. It had a wing at the end that they put me into once or twice. My, I, I loved that. Yeah, just a great sense of history with that it was nearly over the chancery, you know. And uh, did you feel part of something there, or did you feel covert or anything like that? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Describe that. I'm frightened. You. Sometimes frightened, and not so much in text in Charlie, but in uh, the other Friedrichstrasse, and there was one other, I can't remember, one other crossing point. Friedrichstrasse was the most difficult because I had no proof whatever that I had come in the same day, which I hadn't done. I mean, I'd been two or three days in there, and um, they wanted to know why the hell I was in there when I shouldn't have been. I know, a job to persuade them to let me out. Yeah, yeah well, I, I suppose in, in the number of trips I made on that mission, must have been six, seven, that round that number, because I know it wasn't, didn't last that long. And overall, it would have lasted maybe 10 months or a year. And I I wasn't a friend of the CIA, but I I made it an excuse for whatever fear was possessing me about doing this job. Um, I, I was acutely aware that I was giving them bullshit. I mean, really, it was, it was uh, open to everybody what I was giving them. They weren't getting any secrets out of me. You stopped working for these Germans. How did you finish things? By simply stopping, by ceasing, ceasing contact. I think I had invented my, a name for myself. Um, Paddy O'Brien, who was very original. And, uh, uh, I used, I'd got at least two phone calls to the house in Oakland's Drive in Rathgar from them to say when was I coming again or something and uh, I think that frightened me 
you know, the fact that they could actually contact me direct frightened me. Yeah, it wasn't. My recollection is that I took the central press office to be more or less what it was. I did not even know the word Stasi at the time. And of course a lot came out about Stasi and the forcing people to inform on each other and all these things that they did. Yes, there was regret over that. And that's they're the reasons I gave up anyway. I could still find myself on a list of suspicious strangers going through, but I haven't found it so far. over the courtyard at the back and you can see where the aerial for the secret radio for Germany was strung from the chimney there at the end of what was my room to the top of the tree. Donal O'Donovan's childhood home, Florenceville, still stands in Shank Hill, County Dublin. Just this, this wing was where Gertz slept his first night. That was a bed, and that was my bed. Shangan River runs down there. We had a boat on the river. You could carry the boat over the sand and get into it at the sea and row to Docky Island. You know, it was, uh, we would sometimes go for a swim four times in the day. We should have different summers then. I did get angry. I, that that anger came later when when I realised that he had, in really been irresponsible in rejoining a movement that he had served twice, and you know had no real reason to serve again, and especially to do it unsuccessfully. So I did get angry. I was fortunate that I stopped drinking when uh, in the uh, two years before he died and I had some time with him. But he was very miserable, in pain, and so on, in a nursing home. And my wife and myself were the only people in the bed, in the bedroom when, when he finally expired. So that was some kind of reconciliation. He had a saying of his own, beneath that rough exterior, there beats a heart of stone. And I feel that applies to me. I can recognise a lot of his traits in me. Um, I'm not especially pleased with them, but they're there. I don't deny that. The Germany that I was visiting was a bit tatty and a bit worn down, and, and that's why I liked it. 
and that's why I liked its people. The Germany that he was visiting was uh, a much grander place and a much uh, more... I mean, it was the Third Reich, and it, it should have worked. And bloody nearly did work. Thank God it didn't. But maybe it's more than coincidence. Maybe I was con unconsciously echoing these secret trips to to Germany. I don't know. I, this was, I better wrap it up now in a second. I've just got one kind of asked final question. When you were going to Checkpoint Charlie, and it's 1963, mm. did you think of your dad? No. No, I don't think so. No. And never when you walked around Germany, do you think he, he was in Berlin in 39? I don't remember thinking of that at all, no. Or even making the comparison which you're making. Yeah. Yeah. I felt it was having a totally different experience anyway. Yeah. I still have trouble grieving him. That may come, but it hasn't yet. <laughs>